All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day just to be alive, to be able to be here as family, to gather together in unity and learn your word. Help us not take these privileges for granted. And most of all, Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to become a man and in his true humanity to take our place on the cross, our place of judgment, so that our sins have been removed forever and ever in his blood. Father, bless this message. Have your spirit guide us and teach us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, again, the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 78. Let's turn to Colossians 1.9 and give this uh, beautiful passage one more read. I know pastor said on Sunday it was going to be the last time, but uh, Spirit said differently. And actually, it's pretty neat to keep going back to one main passage, I think, you know, and uh, that gives us a springboard into the topic we've been on. Colossians 1.9 For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we've been focusing on walking in a manner worthy of the Lord in verse 10. And in verse 12, we see that God qualified us to do this thing and to be able to do this thing. So we've seen on the board, the word qualified is the Greek word hikano'o, and it means to, to be made sufficient, to be made adequate, render fit, be made able or competent. And this is what God has done for us and to us. Uh, after all, we are new creatures in Christ. He made us completely brand new creatures. He didn't fix up the old. So that brand new creature has this ability, uh, is sufficient, you know, he's made us able to walk this walk that he asks us to walk. So on Sunday, we saw the connection Paul made between walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and being qualified to do so. As we read scripture in context, this type of connection we see quite a bit. You know, and even going back to salvation and sanctification. You know, from faith to faith, the righteous man shall walk by faith. These are all um, the same type of idea, the same type of connection. And God has empowered this life for us from beginning to end, and that's what we must cling to, we must remember. God has empowered us to do these commands. Otherwise, we could not possibly do them. So we talked about the challenge that the Word gives us to walk in a manner worthy of this high calling on our lives, and some of the various biblical terms used to describe this idea. 
So just a review from Sunday, talking about walking in a manner worthy, as in Colossians 1.10. We see similar ideas, such as in Romans 1.17, from faith to faith, the righteous man shall live by faith. We're commanded to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16 and 25, to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel, which is an impossibility in our flesh, in Philippians 1.27, and we're also called to walk worthy of the calling in Ephesians 4.1. So we'll see a couple of these again. But there's no shortage of Scripture on the topic. Um, we, could ju- we could probably come up with 20 more very quickly and easily. The Spirit didn't want us to go there. But this is the theme, and this is the power and ability we've also been given by God. And as we've been studying, walking begins with being. We first have to be who God wants us to be. Uh, He's made us to be something, and he gives us the power to be uh, something different in Christ, something supernatural even. So we're called to be a lot of things, but for starters, we talked about being grateful, and how that's a big part of sanctification. Look again in your Bibles. Just look down at Colossians 1.12. What does it say? joyously giving thanks to God the Father. Why? Because he qualified us to share in the inheritance. I mean, what more to give thanks for than that? Again, we're talking about living in that gospel reality. He qualified us to receive an inheritance, to share in an inheritance, totally by grace. And so we joyously give thanks every day. And that is one of the major ways to being sanctified. So we have the results of the gospel in our lives. When we received what God offered us in saving faith, these are the results, including this inheritance. So we joyously can give thanks every single day if we're having the faith of a child. We were reminded Sunday of some beautiful principles from past lessons. And it's interesting, what I saw in the review passage that did on Sunday, is the most uh, beautiful passages are the most simple. The most beautiful principles, even, are the most simple principles. And that's what we're encouraged to do, right? To not forget the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's how God designed the spiritual life to be, after all. Not to be intellectual and complicated, So here are a few of the principles that the Spirit led us to on Sunday. Sanctification simplified. If we are to understand true sanctification, we must understand that it cannot be achieved in the absence of a grateful heart. The cross is the mainstay of a believer's gratitude. Again, joyously giving thanks to the Father because he qualified us to share in the inheritance. There's no end to the ways in which we ought to be grateful for what he's done for us. It literally could be limitless. I don't know if you remember that series that um, the Spirit had me teach a couple years ago now, I guess, on on a thousand gifts. And even challenging yourself to list a thousand gifts that he's given you. You know, that's the, it's limitless. It is a totally limitless concept and possibility if we're humble And we go to him in um, gratefulness. 
And I thought about how the stars are without number, right? I mean, God, I mean, even creation has no limits. Now, you'd think there's got to be a last number, right? I mean, even if it's huge, there's got to be a last one of these and a last one of those. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, The stars are said to be without number. And recently, I was thinking about birds. And looking out in my backyard, I'm blessed to be living in the country right now. And one day I was just kind of counting the birds. You know, five, ten minutes doesn't take too long if you're just able to just look around and observe everything. And I counted at least 50 birds in, in the trees in my backyard alone. 50 birds. No problem. I mean, they blend in. You, you, don't, you might not think there's that many there, but when you really just look and watch them moving around and what's going on, there's a lot going on. Because there's a lot of birds, and the birds and the bees are out right now. It's a very busy time of year. But anyway, I digress. If there are 50 birds in the trees in my backyard, how many birds are on my block? How many birds are in my town right now? It's insane. If you really want to start doing some math, go for it. 50 birds in my yard where there's two people that live in this house and there are 50 birds. Now go to the state. How many birds are in the state of Massachusetts? How many birds are in our country and in the entire world right now? Can you, it's impossible, right? To count the things of God. Brenda's enjoying this. <laughs> it's impossible to count the things of God. You can't even count creation. It's It's astounding. And now think of the fact that the number you came up with for how many birds are in the world right now is right now in the year 2016. How many birds have been created throughout creation? It is literally impossible to count, and I think God likes it that way. And he even shows us his infinite nature in creation itself. And that's how infinite and countless the things are that we are able to thank him for if we take the time. So we saw gratitude on Sunday in uh, Job 9.10, and these are general principles related to what we're just talking about, how countless the things of God really are that we could be grateful for. In Job 9.10, he, God, does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. And in Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We can't count or measure the depth of his riches. And that's good that it's that way. So, do we need to thank God for even specific things? Or, in these verses, can we just thank him for how awesome he is? How unfathomable, how unfigurable he is? That is giving him praise and thanks right there. And uh, thank God that we can't figure him out. Because if we could, if one quote-unquote genius could figure God out or count all the birds or whatever you want to say, then you know what? He's not God. There's a limit. But God purposely shows his limitlessness. And that's one of the things we should be given thanks for. So this brings us back to the phrase living in the gospel reality. It's been so repeated in this series And I think this type of gratitude on the board is part of living in that gospel reality. Living a life of gratitude in light of 
the fact that he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints by grace. That's what enables us to work, uh, to walk in a worthy manner. This gratitude for the reality of the situation. Namely that he qualified us to be saints in light forever. And so we can walk worthy now. How? Being the right person. Thinking the right way. And again, it's from faith to faith, right? Walking how God God desires us to walk starts with being grateful and being a lot of other things that he's changing us into. And when we focus on being who he wants us to be, we can then live in the commands of walking in a manner worthy of the high calling of the gospel without human effort trying to force the issue, all right? without it being in a works program. If we be who God wants us to be and we appreciate everything he's done and we count those things, then right there we're being sanctified, you see? It starts up here, and then we're able to, to walk the walk. So go to Philippians 1.27 as another reminder of this calling or this walk. Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The only possible way we could do that is by grace. So we're talking about having the right perspective to go forward in this. God, on the board, he provides his grace first in changing our hearts, in teaching us to be like Christ. And then we are able, we are made able to walk in his commands with spiritual ease. It's not supposed to be a struggle. So if it is a struggle to walk in the ways of God, then you're doing something wrong. You're relying on human effort in some way or human will, and you're not surrendering fully and, and, and relying on his grace. Because it should be, it doesn't mean we don't have challenges. That's not what we're talking about. The walk, the spiritual walk, should be fluid, one step at a time forward, because it's by grace through faith. And if it's not by grace through faith, then that's when it's difficult. Remember, the Bible says his commandments are not burdensome to us. They're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be joyous. Um, The joy of pleasing a father, for example. That's what we're called to, and that's what we're able or made able to do. And this is what happens when we walk in his love. For example, in 1 John 5, we're told to walk in love. So it's all possible by grace through faith. Go to Ephesians 4, and let's see uh, one more beautiful passage in this concept. Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is uh, uh, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And notice that it reminds us of grace at the end there, right? We're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in verse 1. But grace is provided to help us do the walk once again. God qualified us to walk in a manner worthy. So this is another picture of experiential sanctification as we've seen laid out in Colossians 1, our main passage. If you ever want to remind yourself of what sanctification looks like, then go read these two passages, among others. Go home and just dwell on them, because there's a lot there. Look at Ephesians 4. I mean, there's a lot that makes up this walk, and when it all melds or blends together, it's a very beautiful, powerful scene, kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. But just go and take your time and read it and like just stare at it and see what the Spirit shows you personally. So these are excellent descriptions of walking by faith and how the righteous man shall live by faith. From a lesson earlier this month, we were given this point again on the board, the right perspective. Sanctification is being who God has made you to be, to be full of faith. To be full of hope and full of love is the greatest thing we could hope our lives become. And if we're full of these things, he will use us for mighty good works along the way as part of our sanctification. For example, living in the Great Commission and evangelism. And then on Sunday, we travel back even to a March lesson. For this point, sanctification simplified. Sanctification is a state of being not a series of checkboxes. We need to get out of that religious way that we tend to think. Being implies doing. However, the opposite is not true. Being in love, being grateful, being hopeful, being confident, etc. These are the essence of sanctification. Being who God made us to be, such as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So I hope you're seeing how the Spirit is weaving all these things together. Um, They're all, you know, coming to a peak, so to speak, after these last few months. And they all amplify one central doctrine, which is the gospel, and living in it, and living by it. And then again, it, it is living in it and by it that we are sanctified. So the clearer the gospel becomes in our souls... The more confident we are, the more um, clear and pure and full it is, the more we're able to be like Christ, to be who God wants us to be. I mean, what empowered the disciples and the apostles to walk the way they walked, with the boldness, the way they walked? It was the gospel, reality. And they saw who he was, obviously. They saw him walk, they saw him die, and they saw him raise from the dead. And so... What gave them this courage, this faith? They lived in that reality. It wasn't like learning how to be a a scholar. That wasn't their mission. 
Their mission was go out and obey the Great Commission and tell them about Jesus Christ. Tell them a story of who he really is. And in that very thing, they were being sanctified and set apart. So again, walking isn't about doing, it's about being who God wants us to be. And that's the big picture perspective that we've been trying to grab and cling to and live in. This is all possible because you have been qualified through the gift of salvation to be sanctified experientially. Uh, Again, on the board, sanctification simplified. God has qualified you personally to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Forget about your faults for a minute. If you're thinking of your faults and your weaknesses and how you're not able to do this, you're focusing on the flesh. God has made you and qualified you to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it gets even more glory when you do it in the, in the face of your weaknesses. It's by grace alone. So he adopted us at the moment of saving faith in Christ. And he encourages us to live in that reality which brings about sanctification in our lives. Let's go again to Romans 8 just to be encouraged again on this, on who we are in Christ. Romans 8, 14. Because it's who we are in Christ that enables us to walk in faith and hope and love. Romans eight fourteen. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we're heirs also. Remember Colossians 1, qualified to share in the inheritance? We're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. That's who we are, and that's our destiny. So what's your sense of identity? That came up on Sunday. What's your sense of identity based on? Be willing to look in the mirror. Again, remember the mirror is good. See all is truth. But who are you really? What's your, what's your on your daily walk, when you go through your day, you wake up in the morning, you're on the wrong side of the bed sometimes, we're all there. You know, we grab our coffee, we try to pray, we have to go to work, let's say, or we have our own assignments in life. What's your sense of identity while you're doing that stuff? You know what I mean? We know the right answer to that question. But in reality and in honesty, what is your sense of identity each day that you walk? Is it what we just read in Romans 8? Or is it an old identity that you're not dropping? That you see yourself as something that you're not anymore, but you still see yourself that way. Maybe it's something you don't like about yourself, a weakness that won't go away. But that's not the real you. So what sense of identity are you living in? On the board. A believer must seek their sense of identity in Christ and nowhere else. Not through education, achievement, reputation, worldly successes, you know, whatever things you're clinging to. 
The world will be glad to provide us with a sense of identity, but it's fleeting. We all know that. We've all been through that. And that's what makes us insecure when we rely on the world for some type of sense of identity, when we rely on a strength in our flesh, something we're good at for our sense of identity. It's like a house of cards. So we must seek our sense of identity in Christ and nowhere else. We're new creatures. And every day we wake up, we have to remind ourselves of that. And this walk that we're worthy, that we can walk in because of Christ. So if you depend, or if who you are, rather, depends on the things that gave you self-esteem in the past, then your eyes are on the wrong foundation. You're setting the wrong foundation, even for that day that you wake up. Your foundation is in Christ. Your position is in Christ. And that's what counts with God. Spiritually speaking, you and I will be rewarded for who and what we rely on each day. After all, that's what faith is. Who and what do you put your faith in each day for your sense of identity? Remember, it starts with being who God created us to be, right? Who and what do you put your faith in each day for your sense of identity? 1 Corinthians 3, go there please, verse 11. Again, spiritually speaking, you will be rewarded for who and what you rely on each day. After all, that's what faith is. Who or what do you put your faith in each day for your sense of identity? 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. In other words, who do you rely on? Who's your motivation? What's your motivation for the things you did? If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will still be saved, yet so as through fire. Why? Well, his foundation is Christ in verse 11, as a believer. But where do these good works come from? Where do they come from? That's the important question. The greatest of works we read about in the Bible all started by faith. In Hebrews 11. Again, go read it when you have time. By faith, Abraham did ridiculous things, astonishing things. And by faith, so did many other men in the Old Testament. Where do these great works come from that are gold, silver, and precious stones? Only from walking by faith. Which is very simple, isn't it? That's all he asks us to do. Walk by faith. And he enables us to do it. And astonishing things can be accomplished in our lives. It was by faith that our founding fathers did these 
great acts. And it was by faith that the apostles in the book of Acts did these great acts. And so we can too. It's not an ability question. We've already been made able. So we have the same opportunity to walk by faith, which produces good works of gold, silver, and precious stones in God's eyes. And our true identity has to be in Christ by faith for it to be acknowledged by God or accepted by God. You see, again, it goes back to motivation. God looks at the heart. So it's a daily faith that God is after that brings us through the sanctification process and brings him glory. As the Spirit taught us last week, finding out who you are in Christ. Stay humble and keep hearing. If we stay humble and keep hearing, we will find out who we are in Christ experientially more and more and more and more until one day God will have us at a place we never imagined we could be spiritually, in our faith, who we are, right? Being who God wants us to be. If we stay humble and keep hearing, he's going to take us there. He has to. It's promised. Sanctification is a guaranteed result for the believer. Again, you can go kicking and screaming if you want, but God will get the work done in you, especially if we stay humble and keep hearing. Um, It frees him to act on our behalf. Otherwise, we're destined to be deceived. The flesh is a brittle instrument of unrighteousness, never able to provide convictions that last, never able to afford true security either. Only eternal life's perspective can give us true security. To we rely on. So again, if you've ever struggled with your sense of identity, why not just allow God to provide you with it? A novel concept. Notice the word allow. It's a faith issue. We receive Christ. The believer receives Christ. It's a faith issue. So through Scripture, by faith, God will provide it if we trust Him. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And in 12.11, just as he wills. Submit and surrender. Walk by grace through faith. And he's going to do it for, for us. That is the promise. Part of our identity, since we're talking about identity, is also love. Because that's who Christ is. In fact, Jesus said, it is by love that his disciples will be identified. That will be their identity in John 13. Go to John 13, verse 34. Jesus said, people will know his disciples by their love for one another. In other words, that's how they'll be identified. So maybe that should be your sense of identity. By faith? John 13, 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Go to Ephesians 5. 
where we are encouraged to walk in love. Ephesians 5.1 So we're commanded to walk in love for one another, just as Jesus gave us the example of how to do it. And we're also encouraged to walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Who empowers us to walk in love? Obviously, he does, if we walk by faith. Pastor brought up a question to think about on Sunday. Does anyone here find it difficult to love those who are trying to destroy the gospel? I mean, if you've ever had a conversation with someone that spoke evil against Christ, I mean, that's hard to bear, gritting your teeth. And it's hard to love them. You know, you want to do something else. But let's hear from Jesus again on this. Go to Luke chapter 6. The Lord teaches us how to love even our enemies. He commands that we love, and he shows us what love is. All at the same time. Luke six twenty seven. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. When's the last time you gave an enemy a $20 bill? And watch their face. I mean, this is what he's asking us to do. doesn't have to be money, but he does say lend. Love your enemies. They might have just spit in your face. They might have just cursed your Lord. But you see they're in need. They may be on a street corner, and maybe they're just in pain. And you're able to love them anyway, even though they just cursed you. I don't know, but... This is our calling. This is this high calling, part of it. But he empowers us to walk like this. Again, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. I love that line. And look in the mirror, right? Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, 
pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So the greatest thing a person can give to another person is love in some form. The greatest of these is love in 1 Corinthians 13. So the question came up on Sunday, how do we give love? By buying things for people? Or is it giving of ourselves in some sacrificial way, which we don't want to hear? Sometimes it might include buying things, like food or clothing, as James talked about in James 2. But love is giving of ourselves. That's why uh, love is so sacrificial and painful at times. True love requires us to put ourselves aside. We'll get to that in a minute. God's had this on my heart lately. He's had me asking myself, what is love and what does it mean to love, to love other people? Is love saying I love you? Or is love doing something helpful, helpful for somebody else? Anyone can say I love you, right? I mean, it's nice to hear, and if it's sincere, it's a wonderful thing. But even, even if it is sincere, is that the act of loving? Or is loving somebody actually loving them? I don't know how to say it. You know, um, what did, what did uh, Pastor Adams in India would say to me? Um, something like put your love on us or something like that. It's kind of a broken English thing, but it was like, you know, show us your love, he was saying. You know, whether you want to pray for us or, you know, put your hand on my shoulder or um, come bless this house. It was like, you know, put your love on us. So love, in other words, again, and this has been a recurring theme, love is an action of some kind. It's not just saying I love you. And who's a greater example than actions than the Lord? So to love someone means to give whatever is needed at the time, especially to a person in need of some kind, whether it's financial or emotional, could be spiritual, could be physical, but it means to give of ourselves. To quote Pastor Charles Stanley, love is asking what is best for the other person. And that is not always easy to do, especially in your free time, especially when you want stuff for you, whether it's relaxing or you want to treat yourself, whatever. We all need that downtime sometimes or alone time or whatever you want to call it. But that's the test right there. What is true love? It's asking what's best for the other person not for yourself. And all we need to look at is the life of Christ. pastor asked us to reflect on this, to ask ourselves, what does the Bible reveal Jesus doing more of? Giving finances or the things it can buy or giving himself, his person, his time, his energy, his love? He was constantly giving of himself with the crowds that surrounded him, that reached out to him, that pulled on him. You ever go walking somewhere and someone pulls your arm? Especially if you're already tired, doesn't it take energy out of you? 
Like, why'd you just do that? Right? You're like, I would believe it or not, that was annoying. Let's use our, our fleshly word. That was annoying because I'm tired and you're, now you're pulling on me. Well, be Jesus. Walking up mountains, walking through valleys, whatever, with crowds pulling at him all the time. He was willing to do it, even though he was probably exhausted in his humanity. He gave of himself, his person, his time, his energy, his love. You know, I'm sure he gave of his sleep a million times for other people. True love means putting self on the back burner. Giving whatever is needed that another needs at the time. Aren't you, aren't you really, really grateful when somebody shows up on your doorstep when you're in need? <clears throat> I mean, you may, may or may not know that they're coming, but when somebody, when you really have a legitimate need, okay? We're not talking about, you know, small things here. And somebody shows up and puts aside their life for you. That is how you know who really loves you, right? There's a true friend. That's what love is. Love acts. It doesn't just say, I love you, right? So that's the only way that one can truly love, by putting aside self. Otherwise, self will get in the way of the walk. Walking by faith, walking in a manner worthy, walking in love. Self will step right in the way. Picture yourself walking down the street, you see somebody in need, and you make the decision, I'm going to walk in love towards them. I'm going to go help them right now, even though I have other things I could be doing. And as you take your first step towards that person, self jumps out and steps in the way. And you're like, get out of the way. You're like, no, nah, you don't want to do this. You're like, get out of the way. What's going to win out? Self is that reality there with us all the time, and he is trying to step in our way from the simple walk. So if that picture helps you, you know, embrace the, the battle. Walk by grace through faith and kick him to the curb. We just saw in Ephesians 5, we're to be imitators of God and walk in love. And that brings us to a review point that came up on Sunday What do true believers do? They follow Jesus, according to his own words. That includes following his examples of loving others. He said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Hmm. It's another description. It's another characteristic of a true believer. It truly is as simple. If you're one of his sheep, you will follow him because you know his voice. And you know he's true security. He's your true identity. So you follow him. And if someone doesn't, well, there may be a question of their true faith. What I like in the Bible, and we've seen this, and for some reason the Spirit is bringing this up again. We studied this a few months ago. But what I like is how some things in the Bible are very plainly matter-of-fact stated in this regard. And that saving faith produces certain things in people that we will see. 
Uh, over the past few months, we talked about fear, fear of God, obedience, and love as three of the main characteristics that we see in believers. Go to Malachi chapter 3. I want to review this verse with you that we went to several months ago. Malachi 3 verse 16 at the end of, near the end of your Old Testament. <clears throat> and what I want you to notice is how the characteristics of true believers are directly compared to those that don't have those characteristics being called unsaved. You know? So let's just read this through and hopefully you'll remember this regarding the fear of the Lord. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my, pos- my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. I hope you see how fear of God, along with serving God, are described as existing characteristics in a believer. And the alternative is to be one of the wicked as opposed to one of the righteous. And we are called to distinguish between these two parties, by the way, in verse 18. On the board, one other sign of a believer is love. In 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And we see from John that eternal life is being spoken of here when he says we've passed out of death into life. Okay, we're born again. <clears throat> but the one that does not love is said to be still in death, implying that he is not passed into eternal life. He is not saved. So as a balanced statement, things like fearing God and uh, loving the brethren, these things begin in the heart, right? These things are who we, we be. God's made us to be. So these things begin in the heart, and then they eventually flow out in the lifestyle of the believer. But, for example, loving the brethren, as we already saw in John 13, is a sign to others. It's how men will know that we are his disciples. So this implies this love will be able to be seen by others, too. So it's a beautiful sign of the believer. Continuing in some review from past lessons, we know from Scripture that we're saved by faith in Christ. So let me ask you, why did Jesus tell the rich man he had to sell everything and follow him just to receive eternal life? Why didn't Jesus just say to him, believe, as he did with many other people? Believe and you will be saved. And let me ask you again, we covered this again a few months ago, why did Jesus say, 
deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me in relation to eternal life. Go to, again to Matthew 16, verse 24. <clears throat> Why didn't he just say, you're saved by faith, believe in me, and you will not be condemned? Well, he said that plenty of times, thankfully. So what does this mean? <clears throat> and this is good, you know, this is good refresher for all of us because there's been many a time pastors asked me, do you remember I taught this? And I'd be like, um, no, <laughs> not really. And I'd be like, what do you mean? <laughs> there's so much that we're taught from the pulpit. There's so much to absorb. There's so much to learn that I think the Spirit keeps bringing us back every so often, right? And reemphasizing and reinforcing the things. And some of you right now might be like, I don't know the answer to this question, right? But we went over this a few months ago and how it actually relates to salvation. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Notice eternal life is in view here, folks. This is not some spiritual life issue. He's talking about losing your soul, forfeiting your soul. So again, was Jesus out of line to say this is what you need to do? Or was he saying this is what true saving faith looks like? The rich man had a stumbling block before him. Jesus knew being Jesus, that this man, if he told him to just believe, he'd be like, all right, that's one of the things I'll add to my list, as pastors talked about. But I'm keeping all this stuff. In other words, I'm relying on all this stuff too. My wealth, my own goodness, my ability to keep the commands. And Jesus is telling him it has to be one or the other. Are you going to rely on me? Or are you going to rely on what you've continued to rely on, which can't save you? Thus the command. And so we see a similar principle in this verse. Deny yourself. This is actually what saving faith looks like. I believe this is what takes place in the soul of a man that turns to Christ. He denies himself and follows him, follows Christ. He repents and believes. We talked about turning, right? He repents of the old life. I admit it's not good enough. I admit I'm a sinner. And he turns to Christ. That's what happens in the soul of a man that truly believes in Christ for salvation. And this is why I think Pastor's point on Sunday was so important about playing God. Just like a person has no right to say, you're not saved because I can't see any fruit, a person has no right to say, you're saved even though you don't bear fruit at all. They don't follow Jesus at all. And yet you want to tell them they're saved? They're both errors that stand in contradiction to Scripture. I mean, who are we to tell anybody for sure that they're saved or not saved? We don't have that wisdom. But one thing I think this brings out is if we sit back and assume people are saved, 
when they bear absolutely no fruit whatsoever in their lives or they don't follow Jesus like Jesus said they would as a sheep, are we lulling people into a false sense of security? I know I have in the past. I know I have relatives that grew up in a certain denomination that says they believe in Jesus, that I always assumed are saved, and over the years, the conversations I have with them are horrible to a point where I don't think they could or do believe in Jesus. You know, people picking and choosing the things that they agree with and throwing out whatever they don't want. But anyway, should we assume that people are saved if they don't follow him at all? I'm not talking about going up to them and, you know, confronting them and saying, you're not saved. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not our right. I'm talking about us um, lulling people into a false sense of security, maybe. Ignoring the signs and saying, ah, they're all right. They're good. If people don't follow Jesus at all in their lives, as Jesus says his sheep do in John 10, are we to turn a blind eye in hopes that they are saved? Or are we to make disciples, go and make disciples as part of the Great Commission? And maybe indirectly plant some more seeds with them and explain the fullness of the gospel maybe. I don't know. But why assume somebody is saved, right? Scripture tells us we'll know people by their fruit. And it says every good tree will bear good fruit in Matthew 7. So that's like just a fact of what a believer is. But again, only God knows all the fruit someone will bear, right? It starts in the heart where nobody can see it. It starts with a being who God wants you to be and living in the fruit of the Spirit as you're sanctified by faith. But let's not fool ourselves if we don't want to face the facts about certain people. And let's not fool others, but speak to them the truth in love as in Ephesians 4. So I want to close with a little story I want to share with you because this very topic that we're talking about right now came up several months ago in our lessons. And Monica actually shared an experience with me about when she humbly applied this principle with a coworker. I hope you don't mind, but I think it's a good share. It's very valuable. Got her approval. <laughs> so she was at work, at a work function, sitting with a coworker that she knows, and I might mess this up a little bit, but I'm going to get the point across. At one point she said to this woman, or she asked this woman if she was a believer, and the woman said, yes. And Monica herself said that in the past, she would have stopped there and rejoiced. Right? Be at rest. She's a believer. Awesome. Cool. But the lesson was bringing us to a point of asking follow-up questions, if you remember. So she asked a follow-up question, not to assume that she was saved. Upon that question of what she meant by being a believer, the woman gave a vague term about believing in some higher power and in the goodness of mankind. Almost a positive attitude kind of thing. Well, guess what? Jesus did not come up out of her mouth. And so this supposed believer 
clearly was not. And Monica had an open door to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its fullness and plant a seed at least. So are we to assume that others are saved, especially if they don't follow him? Why not, you know, plant a seed? You know, water it. Pray about it. If God wants to give you an opportunity with that person who you, you wonder about. We see this a lot in our geographic area, especially with a certain large denomination. So I say, let's not fall into the trap that others are saved because they profess to be believers or because they grew up in a certain church. The big question is, believers in what? You can say it, but so what do you mean? There's so, there are so many lies being spread now in our culture even in churches that don't really stick to the Bible anymore, maybe don't even preach Christ, and they call themselves a church. And you can easily confront or encounter a person, rather, who goes to church. And it would be a mistake to assume they're saved, wouldn't it? Think about it. God knows what they believe, what they're being taught. So a nice follow-up question in love might just allow a seed to be planted. And maybe by grace, we can have a hand in turning a goat into one of his sheep that follows him. And they follow him. Why do, why do his sheep follow him? Because a true believer has such immense gratitude for being saved eternally from their sins that they follow him. They can't not follow him because of the gratitude for someone who realizes what's really been done on their behalf. And if they don't realize that and they don't believe that, there's a chance they're not one of his sheep. And so we pray for opportunities, for clarity. And in humility, we can always tell the truth in love. And people will see it if we approach them in love. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to travel your word, read your scriptures in context, we thank you for the review and the encouragement for our souls. We ask that you help us bring your truths to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.